Are y'all going to sing again? Okay, it looked like this was <laughs> Luke chapter 6 in your Bibles. Aaron, I'm so thankful for you. I wish we had uh, an entire church full of Aaron Gaines. Uh, Aaron is just an outstanding young lady and leader in our youth ministry and top 20 in her class, uh, in the top 20 there, and then also um, planning to go into children's ministry with her life. And so we're just so thankful for Aaron and the way that she is walking in wisdom. What verse in the Bible do you think is the most quoted verse in all of Scripture? Well, that's one of the nominees, John 3.16. Y'all don't charge the stage with that or anything like that. Uh, Psalm 23, I think, would be amongst the nominees. Uh, And certainly the Lord's Prayer. We quote the Lord's Prayer. We sing the Lord's Prayer. You know, I was thinking that probably, though, the likely winner would be don't do not judge lest you be judged. Because people quote that, whether they're in church or not, and they quote it in various ways. Sometimes we'll start a sentence with, well, I'm not one to judge, but... Uh, or sometimes we'll say something and then we'll say, I'm just saying. Or, or we'll say, hey, hey, don't judge me. No judgment here. You know, don't judge me, man. All these are basically variations on Jesus' words where he said, do not judge lest ye be judged. Well, we're continuing our journey through the Gospel of Luke right now. We're looking at the red letter uh, words of Christ, some of his tough teachings. And in Luke chapter 6 and verse 37, Jesus said these words, Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So I want us to focus in on those first words there where Jesus said, Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Now, what is Jesus saying, and what is Jesus not saying in this passage of Scripture? Let's start off with what Jesus is not saying. Jesus is not saying that there is no such thing as right or wrong. That's not what he's saying, that there's no such thing as right and wrong. People sometimes will use this verse whenever they have done something that is morally wrong, when they do something that they know is wrong or at least debatable, and after doing this, they'll look at people and say, well, hey, don't judge me, man. Don't judge me, man, okay? The Bible clearly teaches that there is such a thing as right and wrong, and there are moral absolutes, there are moral truths that are right And there are things that are just wrong. There is such a thing as immorality. When you break God's rules, there are always consequences to this. You know, when God says don't do this, He doesn't tell us not to do something because He wants us to uh, have all of our fun extinguished. When God tells us do not do this, He gives us that command because He knows that if you go down that path, there will be consequences. Some of these consequences might be earthly, and some of these consequences might be spiritual. And ultimately, God is in charge of the spiritual consequences. God is our ultimate spiritual judge, and one day we stand before God, and He is the one that judges our soul. He is our spiritual judge in every way. 
a few years ago, I was talking to a realtor. I was using a realtor to sell a house. Nobody knows who's back in, nobody knows this person who's back in Austin. And I remember the, the realtor said to me, Pastor, I have to treat you right because I don't want you to send me to hell. You hear that occasionally as a pastor. And now it would not be judgmental for me to say to the realtor, you know, lying to a client is wrong whether I'm a pastor or not, okay? Because in that situation, is lying right or wrong? <gasps> Y'all are judging, okay? No, nah, it's, it's wrong to, to tell, a, tell a lie. It would be judgmental for me to say, that's right, you better be careful because one false move and you're out of here, you know what I'm saying? That would be judgmental at that point because then I would be putting myself in the position of God. Jesus is not saying there is no such thing as earthly authority. There is such thing as earthly authority when dealing with matters of behavior. There is a key question that we need to ask, and that is, has God put me in authority over this situation? Gossip and judgment take place when we draw conclusions about things or people But God has not given you any authority in the situation. You don't have a vote. You're not a supervisor. You don't have any authority. And yet you put yourself in a position of authority. You easily find yourself slipping into gossip and judgment. It is amazing how much happiness increases when you get out of the business of making other people's business your business. Boy, no amens on that. But there are times when God places you in a position of earthly authority. I think of parents. You know, there's one command in Scripture that God specifically gave to children. The one command that God specifically gave to children is to obey your parents. And so if you are a parent, to a degree a grandparent, you have a responsibility to parent your children. You don't just give life and check out. You have a God-given responsibility to parent your children. My three-year-old Bennett, the other day I'm trucking through the living room, and there's Bennett, he's playing, and he has a, a toy in his mouth. He actually has this little slide, and he's sticking it in his mouth like a tongue sticking out, okay? It was kind of funny, but it was also a choking hazard, you know? So you can't put your toy in your mouth. So I I look at him and I say, hey, Bennett, take that toy out of your mouth. And he looks at me and says, no. I say, Bennett, take it out of your mouth. He says, no, I don't want to. Now, I, as his dad, have a responsibility and an authority to exercise some judgment. There are some areas in life where God gives you the responsibility to determine earthly consequences. And so Bennett needed some consequences. And as his dad, there were several opportunities for me here. I could put him in time out. I could appropriately spank him. I could talk to him. I could give him what I call a significant emotional response. But I was in a position here where I 
needed to bring about some appropriate consequences in his life. You say, well, what did you do? That's none of your business. Get it? Get it? Okay, I'll tell you. I, I took the toy. I took it from him. He cried and wailed. And so what, what's one of the things that Stacy and I talk about, we talk about taking away their freedom. And at that point, his freedom stopped, okay? And I established with him that he had to obey, and I established with him why he had to obey. We took care of the situation. Now, some of you may have dealt with it differently, but here's a little bit of news. You're not his father. I'm his father, and God's given me a responsibility to train him and to raise him in the way of the Lord. And we have to take responsibility for the areas of life where God has given us authority. And then we have to trust God's judgment in the areas of life over which God has not given you authority. Jesus is also not saying that it's important to exercise good judgment I'm sorry, Jesus is not saying that it's not important to exercise good judgment in your life. All day long, every day, you have to evaluate. You have to make judgments in your life. How am I going to spend my time? How am I going to care for the body that God has given me? How am I going to spend my money? Do I let this person in real close to me, or do I need to have a boundary? Do I listen to this sermon, or do I surf the Internet? All through your day, every day, we all have to make judgments. And it's important that we learn to have good judgment. Jesus is not saying that you don't need to have good judgment in life. You are where you are because of the choices that you have made along the way. And I hope that you have learned to exercise good judgment. Now, there are three good judgment questions that I encourage you to ask. I encourage you to ask the question, what does the Bible say about this? When you have situations that you're facing, particularly when they deal with spirituality, morality, ethics, ask yourself that question. What is the Bible? What has God said in the Bible about this? Then secondly, you can ask yourself the question, what is the wise thing to do? It's not necessarily a matter of what can I do, because you often have multiple options of what you can do. But what is the wise thing to do? Has Scripture spoken about it? Okay, what is the wise thing to do? And then a third question you can ask when trying to exercise good judgment is, how is the Holy Spirit leading me? Now understand that the Holy Spirit is not going to lead you in a way that is contrary to the Word of God. The Holy Spirit's not going to lead you to do something that contradicts what God has said in His revealed Word. But as Christians, as we seek truth from Scripture, as we seek wisdom, and as we seek the Holy Spirit's leadership, uh, it allows us to come to conclusions where we can exercise good judgment. Okay. So what is Jesus saying in this verse? Now, this may surprise you a little bit, but the passage, if you read it in its context, if you read the entirety of the passage, 
is actually talking about how to help people, particularly how to help people who have messed up. Now, the reality is that everybody in this room has messed up. We are all sinners. We have all done things that are wrong. There is nobody in this room who is qualified to be God. If you think that you're perfect, you're prideful. And therefore, we've got you in sin as well. Welcome, because we're all sinners. Now, amazingly, God can take your life, and this is one of the beautiful things about the sovereignty of God. He can take your life, all the pain, all the mess-ups, and He can use you for His glory. And God can use your life to help others. You see, your relationship with God is not just about you and God, and God help me to be a better me. God bless my life. Do this for me. Do this for me. Your relationship with God, yes, it has a me aspect to it, but it's also about others. And how can God use me to help others? Helping others who have messed up, helping hurting people begins with the right attitude. And so Jesus says, do not judge, and you will, be not, you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured into your lap, for with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So let me give you a scenario. Your teenage son, or for some of you, your teenage grandson, is brought home by the school's resource officer, the police officer of the school. And your son has been caught cheating on a final exam. And then, to complicate matters, your son lied to the teacher and lied to the principal. So question one, has sin been committed? Yes. It is wrong to lie. It is wrong to cheat. So it's not being judgmental to say that it's wrong to lie, it's wrong to cheat. Are there earthly consequences that your son now faces? Absolutely. He's going to face uh, probably a suspension from school. It very well might affect uh, which college he can get into because colleges don't really like it too much when they hear that students got caught um, cheating on final exams and lying to principals, so it might affect that. And mom and dad may have a punishment, too. So there are earthly consequences that your son's going to have to deal with. Yet, godly parents must guide our children to the morals of God without ever distancing ourselves from the grace of God. Back to our scenario. In relationships, you reap what you sow. So if you encounter hurting people and you bring to them judgment and condemnation, they will respond back to you with judgment and condemnation. If you are not willing to extend forgiveness to hurting people, they will not be willing to extend forgiveness to you. If you withdraw love and turn love into a performance-based thing, and when someone is hurting, that's your initial go-to reaction, 
they will in turn withdraw love to you. If you try to play God to hurting people, it will destroy the relationships that you have in your life. Only God can be God. And God is more than capable of enforcing His law and extending His grace. When you, though you have to be a father in this scenario, you have to allow the young man to face the consequences, you have to provide boundaries and consequences yourself, but ultimately you want to lead this young man back to the grace of God. You want to restore his spiritual relationship because at the heart of the problem is a spiritual brokenness. So when you give grace, when you give honesty, when you give forgiveness, whenever you give love, whenever you humbly try to restore a hurting person, in most cases you reap what you sow. And you find that they respond back to you in a favorable way. Well, in verse 39... He also told them this parable. Can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into a pit? The student is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. Can the blind lead the blind? The greatest enemy of vision is pride. Nothing blinds a man faster than a prideful spirit. Now, this was the problem with the Pharisees. The Pharisees went to church all the time. The Pharisees knew the Scriptures. They were very proud of all the religious things that they did. Look at me. Look at all the different stuff that I do for God. And they had become so proud that they couldn't even see their own sin. And so they were incapable of helping anyone because they were incapable of seeing their own need for help. And so they had become spiritually blind. They were incapable of seeing God right in front of them. Now think about this irony. These are the people that go to church, went to synagogue, knew the Scriptures, taught the Scriptures. The Son of God was standing right in front of them, preaching and teaching and ministering, and they thought He was from Satan. They were incapable of seeing God at work, and yet they felt themselves plenty capable to speak for God. When we speak for God while dressed in arrogance, we become the blind, leading the blind into the pit of pain. Jesus says in verse 41, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye? Now, you need to understand the culture and context here. What was Jesus' profession? He was a carpenter. So he's giving us some carpenter humor here, okay? His audience may have even been laughing as Jesus said this. Why are you worried about a speck of sawdust in your brother's eye? When you've got a plank sticking out of your own eye. Now, have you ever had a speck of sawdust in your eye? It'll mess you up. You know what I'm saying? So that speck of sawdust is a problem. There's a hurting person here. 
They have a speck of sawdust in their eye. Do they need to get that sawdust out of their eye? Yeah. But they don't need somebody with a two-by-four sticking out of their eye to do the surgery, do they? They need somebody who can see clearly. Whenever you go into surgery, it's pretty important that your surgeon can see, right? So Jesus says, you hypocrite. First, notice, first take the plank out of your eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So at the end of this entire passage, we are supposed to help people. We are supposed to help hurting people. The man comes to you. He has sawdust in his eye. He needs you to help him. But before you can help him, you have to have the right perspective. You have to have the right attitude. And you have to understand who you are in regards to God. Because if you think you're God, if you think you're perfect, if you are dressed in arrogance, if all you can bring is condemnation and judgment, you're not in a position where you're going to be helpful. In fact, you're liable to do more damage than good. Now, be careful here. Being a sinner does not make you a hypocrite. We are all sinners. I often hear something along the lines of, well, how can this person be such a great Christian when they do this, this, and that? And they'll say, they're just a a big hypocrite. Well, now there's a reality here that all of us are sinners, right? And so if being a sinner makes you a hypocrite, then all of us are, you all said it, not me. Okay, don't judge, don't judge, right? Hypocrites are those who wear a mask, and they wear a mask of perfection to cover up their need for grace. They pretend as if they're perfect, and they don't need grace from anyone. They don't need grace from God. Understand this, that without grace, we are enemies of God. Without grace, we fall short of God's glorious standards, and there are painful life consequences that we're each going to face, and an eternity that is filled with judgment and condemnation from the Lord above. If God does not extend grace to you and to me, our eternity is separated from God. If God does not extend grace to us, we face an eternity with judgment and condemnation. You say, but last I go to church. I read my Bible. I have KLTY on my presets in my car. I do all these good things. If God doesn't extend grace to us, we face an eternity of judgment and condemnation because we're all sinners. Grace is not something you deserve. Grace is something God has chosen to extend to us through Christ. Grace is free to me, but it is in no way cheap because it has been extended to us through the nail-pierced hands of God's Son. And until I understand that I am who I am because of the arms of grace, 
then I am incapable of spiritually leading others to grace. As long as I think that I am who I am because of my goodness and because of my, my abilities and because of my own righteousness, then I am like the blind leading the blind. You are who you are in Christ because of the glorious grace of God. But over and over again, I see this in Christianity, the blind leading the blind. And when we are unable to see the arms of grace, then what we do is we lead people into the arms of law. And we teach them that God loves them when they behave well. And that God withdraws His love when they don't behave well. And if they do more good than bad, then when they stand before God, God will say, come on in. We don't teach them to run into the arms of grace. There are earthly consequences. There is right or wrong. But there's also grace that's been extended to us from God above. So then our kids grow up. They fall into sin. They start doing things that we disapprove of. And rather than gracefully leading them back to God, rather than trusting God to do His work in their heart, sometimes, not all the time, and I understand this hits close to home for some, sometimes we pridefully drive them away from the cross rather than lovingly drawing them to the cross. And we wonder why. Why did they grow up and not want to have anything to do with God? Frequently we reap what we sow when it comes to helping hurting people. Thursday, Tiny and Fletch found me a pumpkin. Now we've already heard... Don't you know there's prettier pumpkins out there in that pumpkin patch that you could put on display? This is the prettiest pumpkin in the entire patch. I told Fletch and Tiny, find me the ugliest pumpkin that we have in the entire pumpkin patch. Because I want to use it. I want it. This is my grace pumpkin. I'm going to use this to teach my kids that beauty is only skin deep. I want to use this pumpkin to teach us that God doesn't love us for our loveliness. He loves us because in Christ, I am His child. Who would want this pumpkin? Who would buy this pumpkin? It's awful. It's got warts. It's got bruises. It's all lumpy. The only good thing it has is a nice stem. There's nothing about this pumpkin that I would want. But God wants the pumpkin. There's nothing about our lives that is beautiful. And some of us have really messed up. Some of us have done things that we're ashamed of. Some of us have walked down paths that we don't want anybody to know about. Some of us have 
hidden darkness in our life that we still wrestle with? Who would want the rose? Who would want you? God wants you. God wants to extend His grace into your life. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus didn't say, okay, I'll die for you after you clean up your act. He died for us as sinners. He takes us from where we are to where we should be. The law clearly shows us that we have done wrong and we need forgiveness. And God, through His Son, extends that forgiveness to us. And He takes us to where we need to be in Christ. His grace finds me in the rough patch, in my sin, brings me home, cleans me up, and gives me a new identity in Christ. Now, I don't know the totality of your story, but I do know that God can use your life. God can use your pain. God can use your background to help others. God extends grace to you. God extends forgiveness to you in Christ. And as great as it is to receive that personally, God doesn't give it to you just for you. God extends grace to you so that your life might bring glory to Him. And one of the ways that your life brings glory to Him is by helping hurting people. Finding those people that are hurting and they need a Christian, they need a neighbor, they need a family member to reach out to them and bring them back to God. Bring them back to the grace of God that saved you and changed you. They need you. And God can use you. God can embolden you. I know you can't change anybody. Only the Holy Spirit can change people. I know sometimes it's frustrating, but God can use you to make an eternal difference in this world. When you love people and you draw them to the grace of God rather than repelling them from the cross of Jesus Christ. Would you stand with me, please, as we come to a time of commitment? Father, I thank you so much for this dear church, and I thank you for those that are here today. And I thank you that you love us in spite of our loveliness that your love is extended to us in Christ and that in Christ we are your children, not just when we do right, but even whenever we continue to struggle and stumble. We are your children for all eternity and we belong to you. And Father, I pray for those that are hurting. I pray for those that find themselves going in directions that are away from you. I pray that we will have wisdom to reach into the darkness and to help people come into the light. Lord, allow us to say those things that need to be said and not to say those things that don't need to be said. Lord, help us to have the right attitude, the right perspective. And I want to pray specifically for sons and daughters today that might be turning to their own way. I pray, Father, that you might change their heart. I pray for kids that are growing up in our church and our student ministry, kids that are growing up in our neighborhoods that don't seem to feel like they need you. 
pray, Father, that you might show them your love and your grace and draw them to you. I pray, Father, that as a church, living water of Jesus Christ will flow through us. Lord, may the fruit of the Spirit not just be a nice list, but may it be the people that we ascribe to be, people that have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control flowing through us. Help us to realize that being a Christian is more than what we know. Being a Christian is about who we are. And Father, may we find our identity in Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray and worship. Amen.